You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. If you've never been to RUF before don't really know what we do, we just take books of the Bible or passages of the Bible and work our way through them and talk about them. We want the Bible to be able to speak for itself. And we've been looking at the parables that Jesus told, which are little stories or images that Jesus painted that were intentionally uh, told in such a way to aggravate us, to stir us up and to frustrate us so that we would be forced to pay attention. And I think this little passage that we're going to look at tonight is going to do that. So if you would, let's look at this passage from Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, and consider it together. Jesus says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let me pray, and then we'll consider it together. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for this passage. I pray that um, you would use it to do what it always does, which is to um, confront and to uh, assault those that are... um, confident in themselves, and I pray that it would at the same time reassure and overwhelm those that find themselves to be weak and needy and dependent on you. So do this great um, heart surgery in us. Begin with me and uh, do this in us tonight as as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best movies that I've seen probably in the past five years is this really odd, weird indie movie called Lars and the Real Girl. I don't know if you've seen it, it's starring Ryan Gosling, beautiful human being, Lars. But he plays this guy named Lars, who is this painfully shy, awkward, horribly painful to watch person who is like incredibly socially awkward. Because, as you, you discover as the story goes on, his mom has uh, passed away earlier in the movie. And his dad uh, just recently passed away. And so he finds himself to be all alone. And he's carrying around tons of pain, tons of baggage. And he lives in this little town where people know that he's really, they love him, but he's like super awkward and hard to be around. And so what he does, because he's so painfully awkward with people, he orders a life-sized blow-up sex doll that he dresses up and carries around town and tells people it's a wheelchair-bound missionary named Bianca. That is his girlfriend. And the town kind of plays along with it because he's so, because they love him, and so like he'll wheel this doll to church, and all the ladies from the church will kind of 
gather around her and like ask her questions and they're kind of participating in the fiction of this weird relationship. The girls will take her for the afternoon and go like run errands. Uh, he'll, take, he'll take Bianca to the doctor and the doctor will check in on her and like take her blood pressure and it's, from the outside, it looks like this wonderful relationship between Lars and this plastic fake person named Bianca, and everyone's participating and reinforcing it. And if you take that idea from that movie and you apply it to our spiritual lives, the image that I want you to have is that I think it's very possible for you to have a relationship with a fake plastic god. And it may even be true that all of your friends are reinforcing and encouraging it and participating in the fiction. But of course the question is, how do you know? How do you know if you have a relationship with a fake plastic god? Because you can't really see it. And it's to that question that Jesus provides an answer with this passage, with this little parable. And so in these four little verses, what I want you to see is that Jesus shows us who God is, what God requires, and how God motivates So those are the three big ideas I want to look at with you tonight from this passage. Who God is, who the real God is, what God requires, and then how God motivates. First, uh, who God is. Jesus begins by painting this picture of this dynamic of a master-servant relationship, which would have been a common relational scenario in this Middle Eastern culture. And it's into this Scenario that Jesus asks this question in verse 7, if you look at it. He says, okay, let's say you have a servant who's been out in the field doing their job, and they come in at the end of the day. Would the master say to the servant, hey, you sit down and let me fix you something to eat? And the answer that everyone would have provided would have been, no, that's ridiculous, that's stupid. That's why in verse 8 he continues and says, uh, no, the master would say, prepare my dinner, fix me something to eat, and then when you get off the clock you can kind of take care of yourself. But what Jesus is doing right from the beginning here is he's, he's kind of setting the record straight. He's saying, let's, let's make no misunderstandings about what this relationship with God actually looks like. Who is God in this scenario? God is the master. And who are we? We are the servants. That's the fundamental dynamic. That's the fundamental relationship. He is the master. We are the servants. And if you think about the nature of that relationship, servants are not necessarily employees that can talk back when the master tells them to do something. Uh, They don't negotiate when they're told to do something. They don't bargain. They're just simply under orders. The Bible will not make sense to you. Christianity won't make sense to you. The gospel will not make sense to you. Unless you at least begin with this starting point, that that is the nature of our relationship with the real God. He is your master. You are his servant. You exist to do his bidding. Now I know, if we're honest, everyone in this room hates this. Like this, You're chafing against and allergic to everything that I'm saying. Because we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We want control. We want this thing called freedom. Which is a core, fundamental value of Western America. Is that we want the ability to do whatever we want without anybody telling us otherwise. Uh, Bob Dylan, you know, he was um, uh, in some sense kind of a a wild rebel of a man and then eventually converted to Christianity, became a Christian. And he wrote a song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. 
Here's some of the lyrics. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with long strings of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. See, Bob Dylan gets it. He gets it that we are a, we're fundamentally servant and we serve something. John Lennon, former Beatle, kind of contemporaries with Bob Dylan, hated that song so much despised Bob Dylan for writing it that he wrote a response song called Serve Yourself. And the song goes like this. You gotta serve yourself. Ain't nobody gonna do it for you. And that's the instinct that Jesus is confronting with this little story, with this little parable. That instinct in us of autonomy. I have the right to do whatever I want to do and I don't want anybody to tell me otherwise. This was the motto, by the way, of Walter White. You know, the lead character on Breaking Bad. It's a pivotal scene in that, in that series, that show, where they're at the um, kind of the cancer clinic. Walter White, if you're familiar with the story, has you know, his lung cancer. He's kind of hard on his luck. And uh, he's sitting in the waiting room with this other patient who's a cancer patient. And they're both kind of sitting there waiting to get their results. And um, the guy engages Walter White, and he says, you know, for me, this cancer thing, this has been the biggest wake-up call. Just letting go, giving up control. And Walter White goes, that is such BS. Only he doesn't say BS. And the other guy goes, excuse me? And Walter White says, never give up control. Live life on your own terms. And the other guy goes, yeah, okay, yeah. I I mean, I get what you're saying, but uh, cancer's cancer. And Walter White looks at him and says, to hell with your cancer. I've been living with cancer for the better part of a year. Right from the start, it's a death sentence. It's what they keep telling me. Well, guess what? Every life comes with a death sentence. And until then, who's in charge? Me. That's how I live my life. It's not just Walter White's motto. I mean, this is our motto. We're in charge. We want to do what we want to do. In fact, do you know what the number one song played at funerals in Britain is? Number one most popular song that's played at funerals in Britain is Frank Sinatra's My Way. I don't know if you've ever heard the song by Frankie Sinatra, but it goes like this. Here's a couple of the lines. Just imagine a funeral with someone in the casket and this song playing is sort of a testimony to this person's life. It says this, And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way. John Lennon, serve yourself. Uh, Walter White, I'm in charge. Frank Sinatra, my way. John Locke from Lost, don't tell me what I can't do. Queen Elsa from Frozen, no right, no wrong. No rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. (laughs) 
What does this tell us? This tells us that the human instinct in every one of us is we don't want a master. We don't want God. We don't want someone to be in charge of us. Don't tell me what to do with my body. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. Don't tell me what I can or can't do with my money. It's mine. I can do whatever I want with it. Don't tell me who I have to forgive. Don't tell me what to do. We don't want a master. We don't want there to be God. And there's actually historical proof for this. Because what happened when God showed up? We killed him. We don't want there to be a God. We don't want to... We don't want anyone else to be in charge of us. And here's the thing. If you want a relationship with the real God, then you have to start at this fundamental starting point, that he is your master, that he is your king, he is your Lord, and you are his servant. If that's who God is, then secondly, what does God require? Well, if he is your master and he has every right to tell you what to do, and we are his servants, what he requires is obedience. He requires obedience. He expects us to do whatever he commands us. Whatever he commands us. Look at verse 9 and 10. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. Here's what he just said. Not only are you expected to do whatever God asks of you, don't expect to be thanked for it when you do it. Don't expect to be patted on the back. In other words, like, there's no extra points in like, the, the world. There are no bonus points. Uh, there, are no, there are no Christians that go above and beyond the call of duty. There are no super spiritual Christians. We just do our duty, is what he's saying. Look at verse 7 again. There's the servant who's been out in the field. He's working, and when he comes in, the question that Jesus asks is, should the master stop and serve him? And the text says, no, that's stupid. But every, inside every one of us, we're like, Ham, hey, yeah, you should serve me. Like, I've been working hard. And at the end of the day, like, I want to put my feet up. This is a little, this is a little me time. Like, it's beer 30. You know, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, and it's time for me. And, uh, yeah, you can bring me some nachos, and I'll pound out about four hours of Netflix, and then I'll be ready to roll again. Because we think the instinct in us that Jesus is confronting here is when we do what we're supposed to do, when we obey, we're now entitled to a little pampering. We're entitled to a little me time. We, we, we should be thanked. For what we've done. This is why um, it's, it's like in verse 8 sounds so ridiculous. He said, would you thank your servant for doing what they're supposed to do? This would be like going to the pod at the lib to get a little granola bar or something. And, uh, you know, the, the person there kind of scans your granola bar and then hands you the receipt. And you're like, thank you so much. You've been amazingly helpful with this transaction here. Like, that level of thankfulness and gratitude doesn't make sense. They're just doing what they're being paid to do. They're doing what they're supposed to do. What Jesus is doing here is saying, no, you are to obey everything that I command you and expect no pat on the back. Expect nothing in return. Expect no applause. You are to simply say, like it says in verse 10, we're unworthy servants. We're just doing our duty. You know who understands this? Chris Rock. 
I don't know if you've seen uh, Chris Rock's stand-up. Uh, it's hilarious. I don't think I can recommend it from this pseudo-pulpit because it's just so filthy. Um, but I want to read you uh, a little excerpt from some of his stand-up, and I'm having to edit it massively. I hope this even makes sense. Um, but here's what he says. He says, you know the worst thing about people? People always want some credit for some stuff they're supposed to do. People will brag about some stuff a normal man just does. They'll say some stuff like, I take care of my kids. You're supposed to, you dumb idiot. What are you talking about? What kind of ignorant stuff is that? I ain't never been to jail. What you want, a cookie? You're not supposed to go to jail, you low expectation having idiots. It's a lot more funny if you, you know, it's not rated G. But, um, but what's he saying? It's like, when you're doing what you're supposed to do, like, what, you want a cookie for that? And that's actually very convicting to me, because that's me. Like, I want to be recognized and praised for, like, going out of my way to do special things. I open the door for somebody at the library, and they just kind of walk in and don't say thank you or wave at me. I'm like offended that they didn't recognize this incredible act of service to humanity that here I'm doing on the campus. But like I really am, like I get annoyed by that. And Jesus is saying to love your neighbor would mean you going out of your way to open your door. Like you're just doing what you're supposed to do. You're not going above and beyond the call of duty. That's what it means to live as a person. You'd love other people. It's, it's especially hard now that I'm married and I have kids. Like if Catherine, my wife, is gone for the night or something, and I put the kids down, and I do the dishes, and I've done baths, and I've done all this work. When she gets home, I have this feeling of like, you better not ask me to do anything else, because I've done above and beyond the call of duty as a parent tonight. And I'm like, but that's what it means to be a parent. You take care of your kids. I shouldn't expect a cookie or any sort of reward for doing what I'm supposed to do. But this is all of us. This is all of us. My guess is... um, that I'm not the only one. That we all feel entitled to a little me time. We all feel entitled to applause. We want the recognition. We want credit when we do the very thing that we're supposed to do. So we say things like, yeah, I might get a little drunk this weekend because I've studied really hard this week. Like, work hard, play hard. I'm entitled to a little me time now. Or uh, you said you might say things like, I don't want to get near that person that just drains me. Like that, like that call of love and sacrifice to them, I'm kind of exempt from doing that. I went to RUF this week. I mean, I've already punched the Jesus card already this week. Like, what else am I supposed to do? And so we have these kind of logic breakdowns in our head where we think, uh, I'm entitled to a little space, a little me time, because I've done what I'm supposed to do. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. The way that it works is you obey everything that I command you, and then you expect no applause or nothing really in return. And you simply say, I'm just doing what I'm, I'm an unworthy servant doing my duty. The reason why we hate this and don't like this is ultimately because we don't trust God. We don't trust him that his commands are really designed for us to flourish. It feels like busy work. It feels like if we do all this stuff, like where am I going to get any joy in the midst of it? I'm just going to get wrung out and drained and I'm going to be miserable because we don't really trust that his commands are the blueprint for our deepest joy. We don't trust him. But think of it like this. Uh, let, let's say you have a new car 
and you're the only person that ever reads the manual that's in the glove box there, and you, and you read it. It's the book that the designer of the car wrote to tell you how the car functions, what to do with it, how to make it thrive the way it was intended to be. And you get to that part in the manual that says, only put gasoline in the gas tank. And you read that and say, that is so restricting. That's restricting my freedom. Only gasoline in the gas tank? It's my car. I can do whatever I want with it. I'm not going to let some other person restrict me and put their rules on me. And so I'm going to put pancake syrup in it. (laughs) And uh, if you do that, then you bring about damage to the way that it was designed to be. And God is your designer. And when he says, obey me, follow me, he's not giving you busy work. He's not making up just arbitrary rules to make you feel miserable. He's saying, I know way more about reality than you do. I'm wiser than you. I'm smarter than you. Trust me. Follow me. Obey me. Because if you don't, it's like putting pancake syrup in the gas tank of your own life. You will do damage. You're not just breaking arbitrary rules. You're breaking yourself. So think of it like this. Here's a couple of examples. God commands you to forgive people. When you withhold forgiveness and choose to disobey and and hold grudges against people, you do damage to yourself. You become a jaded, cynical, bitter, angry person when you disobey the call to forgive. Uh, God commands you to rest, to rest. If you don't, you don't take a day off, you don't rest, you do damage to your life. You become a stressed out workaholic with high blood pressure and anxiety attacks and stomach ulcers. You do damage to yourself. Uh, God commands you to confess your sin to your trusted friends. If you don't do that, you say, no, I'm not going to do that. You do damage to yourself because if you're not in the habit of sharing your failures with your closest friends, then, then you... Uh, you become someone who's not self-aware and you become a shallow person that nobody really knows how to even connect with. Uh, God commands you to give away some of your money. And if you say, no, I'm not going to do that, you bring about damage into your life. You become a greedy, miserly, entitled hoarder of a person. You see what I'm saying? His commands are designed for you to flourish. And when you say, no, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, you introduce damage into your own life. And I'm convinced the reason why some of you are just in the spiritual funk with God, just numb, bored, stuck situation with God is because you're disobeying him. You're choosing not to obey him. And you're introducing damage in your own heart that's just clogging up your soul, if I can put it that way. But think of it like this. Um, my my in-laws have a house on Lake Pickwick. And we've had a chance to go out there a couple of times with them and hang out at the lake and drive around. And my father-in-law one time took me to this little cove where there's a rope swing attached to a tree. And there were other people there, and we kind of parked the little boat, and I got out because I wanted to do it. And we climb up the embankment. I climb up the embankment, and I'm kind of in line with two or three people in front of me waiting to do a turn, and they're eight-year-olds. So it's, you know, me, this 30-year-old man, and three children in front of me, which is very, um, makes me feel very good about myself when, I'm, when my father-in-law is watching me do this. Um, but you know how the rope swing worked. You know, there's a rope that's attached to a tree, and you bring the rope in, and you have, you know, you're holding the rope with one hand, 
you're holding the tree with the other and you eventually let go of the tree and you swing out over the water, let go, yeah, it's fine, drop in the water, it's, it's fine. But there was this one girl at the front who was kind of holding up the line because she had the rope swing, she had the rope and the tree at the same time, but she was too scared to let go of the tree. She was just stuck, wasn't having fun. And I think that that's the picture of so many of y'all, so many of us where we're just holding on to our control. We haven't released ourselves to fully give ourselves over to obeying God with everything that we are. And that's why we're not having fun. That's why Christianity is not enjoyable to us. That's why it feels like a drudgery. It feels boring. It feels like we're stuck because we're holding on to our control and our autonomy. I'll do whatever I want to do with the one hand and I'll have a little God in my life with the other. That's not fun. It's only when you release and let go and say, I'm giving everything to you, I'll obey anything that you say, that you begin to come alive. So here's the last thing then. How does God motivate us to do this? Because this feels like a tall order. Obey God always, period. How does God motivate us? This is the last thing that I want to look at with you. When you think about how authority figures motivate you, they can motivate you in lots of different ways. Your coach can motivate you by kind of painting a vision of... We can win state this year. So that motivates you to work hard. Or your boss can motivate you by giving you incentives. Like if you work hard, there are chances for you to get you know, moved up in the company or you can get a Christmas bonus or whatever. Police uh, motivate you basically through fear of punishment. This is why when you're going down I-40 and uh, you see the cop kind of perched behind the tree, you instantly start slowing down. You were going 80, now you're going 70. You obey the law, doing what you were supposed to do out of fear that they would punish you. How does God motivate you to obey? How does he do it? Well, look back at this question that Jesus asks in verse 7. The question you ask in verse 7 is basically this. What kind of idiot master would serve their servant? And of course, the answer everyone's expecting is no one. That's that's ridiculous. It's a stupid scenario. And Jesus raises his hand and says, I would. I'm the kind of idiot master that would serve my servants. And he makes this explicitly clear just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 22. Let me read this. Luke twenty two twenty seven reads this. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Mark ten forty five says this. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The one who has all authority, the one who owns us, the one who has authority of heaven and earth stoops down to the lowest place to serve us when he didn't have to. That's the thing that makes the gospel shocking is he reverses the roles and he didn't have to. He could have just demanded, serve me, obey me, period. But instead he comes and serves you. Philippians 2 puts it this way. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why was Jesus perfectly obedient? Why was he the servant that did his duty without asking for any applause or any pat on the back? Why? 
Because he was being for you what you couldn't be. He was living the life that you and I should have lived. And if you think about us, we're the servants that should obey him and yet don't. I mean, we disobey God a thousand times a day. I've already tried to show you tonight. We don't even want there to be a God. We don't want someone to have control over us. None of us does our duty. And so Jesus says to God, okay, even though I've been the perfect obedient servant, I want you to treat me in the way that you would treat them. Crush me and condemn me. And I want you to treat them in the way that you would treat me. This would be like you getting a zero on your organic chem test and that prodigy in your class getting a hundred. And your teacher out of grace for you says, I'm going to give you you know, the failure, I'm going to give you the credit for the prodigy, for what they did, and I'm going to give the prodigy credit for what you did. So we, the disobedient rebels, if we are his, at the end of time, God will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he looks at Jesus, the obedient servant, and he looks at him and he pours out all of his judgment and all of his wrath on him for being the most disobedient, rebellious person that ever lived. Does that mean then that now we don't have to obey God? We get all the credit for Jesus' obedience, so let's just party our brains out. Who cares about all this stuff? No. That's what actually motivates you to want to obey him. When you see he gave up everything for me, the gospel alone is the thing that enables you to trust him. Enables you to recognize his commands are not busy work. His commands are actually designed for me to flourish. You can trust him. You can lean into obeying him even when it doesn't make sense. Care for this person that's hurt me? That doesn't make sense. But you do it out of love for him for what he's done for you. And when you see that he's given up everything for you, doesn't that at least engender something in your own heart of this instinct of, I'll do whatever you ask. I'll fall at your knees and gladly, out of joy, do whatever you want me to do. Here's how Lars and the Real Girl ends. You know, Lars, this awkward Ryan Gosling figure, dating this plastic doll. The end of the movie, there's this girl, or in the middle of the movie, towards the end of the movie, there's this woman in his office named Margot who asks Lars out on a date. It's kind of this shocking moment in the movie because he's so awkward, it's so painful. She asks him out on a date, and as soon as that happens, Bianca, the missionary in the wheelchair, starts to get sick. She starts to die. And so he's like taking her to the hospital, and she's got all the tubes and like the oxygen mask, and uh, even then the doctors are in on it. And, And she eventually passes away. And the church has a funeral, like throws a funeral and like for Bianca. And the, you know, they're, 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 the last scene is they're at the burial site. And there at the very end, there's Lars and the real girl, Margot, standing side by side looking kind of at the grave and everybody's kind of gone. And she's about to leave and go about her day. And he looks at her and says, hey, you want to go on a walk? And she changes her mind and agrees to go with him. And they kind of walk off together and... That's how the movie ends. Spoiler alert. But what happened? What happened with that relationship? His relationship with this fake 
plastic girl got displaced when he actually got to know a real human being. He was liberated from the fiction to really enjoy and experience true love. Some of you tonight have a relationship with a fake plastic god. That if you are honest, the way that you describe him is really that he's, he or she or whatever that is, is a genie in a bottle that exists to grant you wishes. Or it's a butler that just exists to wait on you hand and foot. But I want to invite you to be liberated from the fiction and to come into a relationship with the real God. And the way that you do that is you, you come to understand him as your master who has all the authority in heaven and on earth and over you, and yet he stoops down to serve you even though you've been rebellious against him. That is the true and living God, a God that has all the glory and all the authority and yet is humble enough to stoop down to serve the very people that hate him and want him dead. So consider that an invitation for you tonight, to come to the real God. Let me pray. Father, I would ask that you would give some of us eyes to see and ears to hear, maybe for the first time, and to encounter and experience you as king, you as lord, you as master, and to fall at your feet, not to earn your favor, but to fall at your feet because you've gladly and freely already given your favor. Father, I pray that as a result of this passage and this parable, that for those of us in the room that do know you, that we would be motivated by a deeper love for you, to serve you and to obey you, knowing that your commands are not burdensome, but that your commands are the gateway to life itself. Help me to obey. Help my friends here to obey, purely out of faith in your great love for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.